It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Is it time for investors to get acquainted or reacquainted with bonds? For years, fixed income was seen as the boring dullard at the investment party. You bought it because you had to, not because you were excited. Then last year, the global bond market had its worst year in more than a century. Could bonds get any less popular? But fast forward to today, and many people in finance say that bond markets are still volatile, but bonds themselves are back and worth getting to know. Welcome to Money Clinic, the weekly podcast about personal finance and investing from the Financial Times. I'm Brooke Masters, the FT's U.S. financial editor, standing in for Claire Barrett while she's away. Coming up, everything you wanted to know about investing in bonds but were too afraid to ask. To talk us through the wide, wide world of bonds, I'm joined here in the FT's New York studio by someone who thinks bonds are anything but boring, Edward Al Husseini. Ed, who are you? What do you do? And why do you love bonds? <laughs> Fantastic. Thanks for having me. I am the global rate strategist for Columbia Threat Needle Investments based here in New York City. And I do a lot of work thinking about valuation and bonds and what role bonds play in portfolios for investors. Why bonds? Why bonds? Bonds, in many ways, allow you, as an investor, to speculate on the state of the economy in, in a way no other financial instrument really can. And if, if you're like me and you, you view the world through a somewhat skeptical lens and you are interested in making educated bets about the state of the world, bonds tend to be a lot of fun. Let's start with something super basic. What are bonds and why do they exist? Bonds are really a fantastic financial instrument. In fact, one of the first financial innovations, bonds are an option for you to participate in the income stream generated by an asset. In contrast to equities, which are essentially an ownership stake in an asset, bonds give you the certainty of that income stream and therefore, it's, it's quite different, but much more stable. What are the different types of bonds? So largely, three core forms of debt out there. One is sovereign debt, which is issued by governments and therefore backed by their ability to raise taxes. Two is private debt issued by companies and therefore backed by the balance sheets and income statements of these companies, backed by their business models. 
and their ability to generate cash. And three is debt backed by the health of households, whether that's mortgage securities, asset-backed securities that underwrite borrowings like car loans, for example. So three broad classes. Within that fixed income universe, there is a very special and magical market called treasuries. Now, treasuries are instruments issued by the U.S. government. They're magical because they are the world's preeminent safe haven asset. Now, of course, they're subject to macroeconomic risks, inflation, changes in fiscal and monetary policy, and so on. But they're a foundational asset in that every risk asset is valued against treasuries. Now, bonds you hear about in the news have different durations. Explain to me how that works. A duration is essentially how long a bond will exist. So think about it as uh, the lifetime of the bond and therefore the lifetime of that income stream. When you buy into a bond, you are given the certainty of an income stream for a certain period of time. This could range from months on something like a treasury bill to up to 30 years on a mortgage-backed security. The shorter-term instruments at the moment yield a higher rate than longer-term instruments, largely reflecting the fact that the Fed has been very aggressive in raising rates in the course of the past 18 months. So the three-month T-bill closer to 5.5% versus the 10-year Treasury note is around 4 to 4 and a quarter percent in terms of yield at the moment. But you're able to lock it in for longer periods of time. So you don't have to worry about that rollover risk, or otherwise the reinvestment risk of what am I going to do with my cash when the T-bill matures in three months, in six months? Am I going to be able to reinvest it at the same yield, or will the yield be lower? So central banks have been raising interest rates to curb inflation. What has that done to the attractiveness of bonds? And how we should think about them as an investment versus something like a bank account, which is suddenly starting to yield interest. Well, it definitely makes my job more exciting. We've had the most violent repricing in bond markets that we've seen really in the course of the past 100 years or so since 2021. Inflation is toxic to bonds, largely because it degrades that real return that investors are looking for. And therefore, the last two years have been quite violent. But I think looking forward, it's pretty exciting. The interest rate you can earn on a certificate of deposit on a short-term instrument like a treasury bill is quite high at rates we haven't seen since the global financial crisis, which means as an investor, you now have a very attractive opportunity to invest in that short-term instrument without taking any risk, without taking interest rate risk, or without taking the risk of a credit default or a credit event. Now, at the same time, the attractiveness of longer maturity bonds, whether they're corporate bonds or treasuries issued by governments or guilds, has increased as well. They've become cheaper in the course of the past two years as yields have gone up. So investors are in a very attractive position now where they can both earn a higher risk-free rate on their cash and at the same time 
invest at a much higher yield for the long run and be able to lock in yields that they haven't seen really in the course of the past 15 years or so. So that's a fantastic starting point for investors. So you often hear about treasuries or gilts from the UK government as something that is risk-free. Do you think government bonds are really risk-free? Nothing is risk-free in markets. That is a fundamental lesson for investors. Now, in contrast to corporate bonds and bonds backed by private assets, what you see in government debt is a lower degree of credit risk. In other words, the probability that a government will default is quite low relative to a company or relative to a household. Where there is embedded risk in government bonds is interest rate risk. In other words, as central banks adjust interest rate policy, the valuation of government-issued bonds will go up and down. And so investors buying into treasuries or gilts are exposed to that policy risk. So when you purchase a plain bond, it comes with a specific coupon, which is the payment you will receive at a certain frequency, Yeah, usually six months, sometimes a quarter. So you'll get a fixed payment at a fixed frequency, and then you will get the principal, which is your initial investment in that bond. You will get it at the end, at maturity. When we talk about bond prices, we're really talking about you trading that bond ahead of maturity. So you've decided not to hold your bond to maturity. You have decided to sell it. What is the price that you will get for that instrument? That's the price of the bond. Obviously, if you hold a bond to maturity, you get your original investment back. But the question is, what could you have done with the money in the meantime? Absolutely. So interest rate fluctuations only impact you if you're going to sell a bond. If you hold it to maturity, it has no impact. Your cash flow continues as long as the issuer doesn't go bankrupt. Two considerations. One as an investor, you are always looking at the opportunity cost of holding an asset. And therefore, uh, if an asset goes down in value, even though it's a paper loss, it affects your portfolio and your ability to invest in other assets in that portfolio. Two, you are ultimately interested in inflation-adjusted returns. In other words, the purchasing power of what you're going to make over time. And if you are in an environment where inflation is going up, the real return on that bond will go down. And so inflation is going to be eating away at your returns faster if it's fully allocated to fixed income. So basically, if I own a bond with a certain coupon and interest rates rise the underlying value of my bond goes down. That's that correct. Right? That's okay. correct. And similarly, if interest rates fall, the underlying value of my bond goes up. I think you nailed it. That's exactly it. Yields go up and prices fall. We can get into the bond math behind it. But in essence, that fundamental relationship largely holds for bonds. The other big thing that we're hearing about right now is the risk of a recession. You know, it, it, so far it hasn't happened. People keep hoping there's going to be a soft landing. As we look forward and think about doing our investment planning, what would the impact of a recession be on bonds? If we look at the last 
30 years or so, bonds have been exceptionally attractive as investments in a recession. And specifically, high-quality debt issued by governments, so treasuries, gilts, and high-quality corporate debt, investment-grade debt. The reason that's played out that way largely is a function of the Federal Reserve and central banks being able to anchor policy around low inflation. They've been very effective at bringing inflation down. This is a relatively new phenomenon that really starts in sort of the post-Volcker period in the mid-80s. And since then, bonds have become very effective as diversifiers against equity risk in portfolios. So as an investor, having bonds as a buffer against all the downside you see in equities during a recession has become very attractive. Is the idea that bonds won't lose as much value in a recession as equities will? Not only do bonds not lose as much value, but they may actually gain value in the course of a recession as investors seek what we call safe haven assets. In other words, assets that are not sensitive to what's going on in the economy. Got it. So if if you're worried that there's going to be a recession, you might want to load up on bonds more than if you think life is going to be brilliant and everything's going to keep flying. That's exactly right. Stepping back, if you're thinking about investing in bonds, is there a rule of thumb for when it's better to buy bonds themselves and when it's better to buy, say, a bond ETF? Several considerations. One, bond ETFs can have certain efficiencies around liquidity. They're easier to trade. Bonds are traded essentially what's called on an over-the-counter basis, which means you have to find a buyer and a seller to come together. ETFs are traded much more frequently, and therefore it's easier to find a price for an ETF and discover the price on any given day. Now, for retail investors, ETF instruments might also have some tax advantages in terms of taxable events with distribution. So I think in many instances, ETFs are quite effective instruments. I would say bond mutual funds, even though they're quite different from a strategy perspective, bond mutual funds can be very effective as well, in part because they can access more markets than ETFs currently can within the fixed income universe. And is the idea that a fund would provide sort of more diversity and an ability to get in and out that a straight bond might not? That's correct. So ETFs largely tend to track indices. They tend to be passive instruments that are sampling a very large universe of bonds to replicate the performance of of an index. Active managers will take an active view on the economy. So essentially what you're paying for is a certain degree of insight in terms of what will happen to inflation, what will happen to fiscal policy, what will happen to monetary policy, and you're paying them to package that in in a bond product. That can often be much more effective than an ETF. That's, That's a passive instrument. Before we get into exactly how one ought to do the mechanics of investing, we should probably talk now about what are the risks and downsides of bonds so people are very clear what they're getting into. Absolutely. Two key risks. One is interest rate risk. We talked about that inverse relationship between yields and prices. Largely, that's driven by yields on the risk-free asset. That's, that's the underlying government bond. As yields go up, 
perhaps as a change of monetary policy, that affects bond prices very fundamentally. The second is the credit risk that's embedded in particularly in corporate bonds and bonds backed by household balance sheets, asset-backed securities, mortgage-backed securities. The credit risk premium there is essentially the odds that the underlying asset will default. And that will be more cyclical. That goes up and down with the strength of the economy or the strength of that particular side of the economy. And so investors are exposed to both changes in underlying interest rates, often driven by inflation, and changes in underlying credit risk, which is driven by the quality of the asset. So I'm interested. I want to get into this bond thing. How much of my portfolio should I be thinking about devoting to fixed income and bond products? The most important variable for most investors, in my mind, is time. So the question in terms of sort of your allocation to fixed income, allocation to bonds, the first question is, What's my time horizon here? In general, over shorter time horizons, you want to take less risk and therefore allocate more to bonds. Over longer time horizons, you might have a little higher risk appetite and therefore allocate less to bonds. That tends to be the typical kind of life cycle of um, a bond investment decision. I'll add one wrinkle to that, and that's you want to be opportunistic and you want to be a bit greedy in making the decision and think about the valuation of the asset when you buy into it. In other words, what are you getting for your money? And right now, the value for money in bonds versus equities is very attractive. Bonds are a better deal right now. Bonds are a better deal right now relative to equities, and they're a better deal relative to equities on the number of dimensions that we've seen really in the course of the past 15 years or so. And that's partly because they had such a terrible year in 2022. That's precisely why uh, they're a much better investment today is because they got a lot cheaper in the course of the last year. So a bond investor last year had to suffer through really extraordinary losses. But this year, the starting point is really quite phenomenal. One thing we haven't talked about is the famous 60-40 portfolio, which everyone always talks about, which is 60% equities, 40% bonds, which, you know, for decades was what everyone was always telling you what you needed to do. Should we still be thinking that way? I think as a starting point, a 60-40 portfolio is a fantastic asset allocation tool. It's one, simple. Two, it's cheap in the sense that you can buy an ETF product that embeds that so you don't have to worry about rebalancing. You don't have to worry about a high fee structure. Uh, you know, 10 or 20 years ago, creating a 60-40 portfolio was a pretty expensive proposition. Uh, you know, today it costs uh, single-digit basis points for a retail investor. So, so that's a fantastic proposition to start with. And again, the intuition behind that portfolio is that high-quality debt that's embedded in that 40% will protect you against losses that you see in the equity side of the portfolio. And I think from, again, from today's starting point, that proposition is very attractive. Next question is, okay, I'm, I've now figured out that I, I have, say, a 10-year horizon, so I want a fair amount of bonds. I have a chunky bit of money to put in bonds. Is there a rule for how much I should put into funds versus actually buying a specific bond? In general, if you are 
an individual investor, buying a single bond will not be the most effective way to put your money to use. Now, again, if you're a U.S. domiciled investor, you might do that through municipal bonds, and sometimes those will have tax advantages. But in general, trading individual bonds tends to be very inefficient for small-scale investors. And a much more efficient product will be either a diversified mutual fund or an ETF product. If an investor's thinking about doing all this stuff, other than obviously talking to a financial advisor, which is probably always a good move before throwing lots of money into it. Step Step one. one. Are there other things they should start thinking about as they think, I'm going to do bond investing? They want to grow up and be you. (laughs) I, I think there's sort of roughly three elements to start with when you think about investing in in bonds or fixed income, one is greed. And greed in the bond market is really personified by by the yield. The starting level of yield is very important. It predicts 90 plus percent of returns over most meaningful investment horizons. So you buy cheap, you make more money. That's exactly right. So you want to be sensitive to the starting level of yield. And right now, again, you said yields are 10 to 15-year highs, depending on where you look. Pretty good. Second, I think you want to be a little bit you know, generous to yourself in terms of your ability to predict the future. Now, whether that's inflation, you know, fiscal policy, monetary policy, financial sector accidents, these are exceptionally difficult events. They're difficult to predict. They're very difficult to invest around. And what really matters is less your ability to predict them, but more your ability to react to them. Okay. So how you invest once there's been a shock tends to be very important. Mm -hmm. More important than your ability to anticipate that shock. I think as investors, our ability to anticipate significant shocks is pretty poor. Yeah, certainly mine is. And so in today's environment, what I think it was very difficult to foresee the inflation shock that's come through. I think it was equally difficult to foresee how quickly inflation's come down in the course of the last 12 months. But how we react to that shock is going to drive returns for the foreseeable future. And today, that starting level of yields is quite interesting. So when there's an accident and my bond price falls, that means my current holdings look terrible but I should be looking at the market for opportunities to buy bonds that are now have big yields. Is that That's exactly right. Right. Gotcha. And you said there was a third point. The third point is fear. If you are fearful, bonds, particularly high quality bonds issued by solid companies, by the government, tend to be very good shock absorbers in portfolios. The game in investment is to stay alive over the long term, not to put yourself in a position where a shock or some sort of unanticipated event will burn your portfolio down and, and you know set you back multiple years. You want to be in a position where unanticipated events are offset by some buffer. And bonds remain the best buffer that we have when we think about how we diversify our uh, portfolios against risk. So if if you've been sort of feeling sick to your stomach watching what happens to your equities portfolio, you know, when it goes up and down really rapidly, 
you should sort of think about bond as your sort of security blanket that although it will go up and down, it won't go up and down as much. That's right. And again, look, that's not always true. It hasn't always been true. No relationships in financial markets are set in stone. Last year was quite unusual in that both equities and bonds did quite poorly, particularly in the first half of the year, really reflecting what the Fed was doing to fight inflation. That period is largely behind us now. And I think it again opens up this window for bonds to do quite well in periods when equities perform poorly. It all sounds like it, it's a good time. Really, are bonds back? I think they are. So for all of you out there thinking about what to do, maybe now's the moment. Think about your bonds. Think about your bonds. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Edward Al Husseini is Global Rate Strategist for Columbia Threadneedle Investments. That's it for Money Clinic this week, and we hope you like what you've heard. I've put some free links in the show notes to help you along your bond investment journey. This episode of Money Clinic was produced by Jake Harper. Our executive producer is Manuela Sargosa. Our sound engineer is Breen Turner, and the original music is by Metaphor Music. And finally, the Money Clinic podcast is a general discussion around financial topics. It does not constitute an investment recommendation or individual financial advice. For that, you need to find an independent financial advisor. That's the small print over and done with. I'm Brooke Masters, the FT's U.S. financial editor, and I'll be back with you again next week. So see you then. Goodbye.